the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, if you're looking for something that makes you feel like you have butterflies in your stomach, get some caterpillars and wait a few months, then fry them up. Echoes of dreary departed souls and honorable intentions. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two of our two-part interview with David Drake talking about his novel, The Storm. This is a science fiction novel set in a far future where consensus reality is shattered and people that are alive at the time don't really understand what the past was all about and they encounter technology, highly advanced technology from the past that they're able to use to some extent, but that they don't really understand completely. As David says, it's a it's it's not exactly allegorical. It's a reimagining of the Camelot myth and the idea of Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. So that's cool stuff. David talks all about it. And we interviewed him in his home, which was really cool, sitting at the dining room table there. I want to thank him and Joe Drake for the um, the wonderful hospitality. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword, Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel. First, here's the news. Hey, the January Bain mass market paperbacks are here, and that means happiness blesses the new year for low. When a mass market edition of a book comes out, of course, it's cheaper than the hardcover or trade paperback, but this also means that the ebook price of the book falls. So, however, you like to inhale your story pizza, we got you covered with the new low prices on these great books. First in mass market this month is A Call to Vengeance by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope. Travis Long is back in the Manticore Ascendant series, and this time the enemies of the Royal Manticore Navy, both within and without, are going to find out why you don't mess with Manticore. Also out is Down and Out in Purgatory by Tim Powers. Hey, this is the great um, short story collection that was out last year and was nominated for a World Fantasy Award. It was a World Fantasy Award finalist last year. 21 pulse-pounding, mind-bending tales of science fiction, twisted metaphysics, and supernatural wonder from two-time World Fantasy Award winner and Philip K. Dick Award-winning author of The Anubis Gates and On Stranger Tides and lots of other books. Tim Powers. Hey, and we have a third mass market out, uh, The Bronze Skies by Catherine Asaro. This is the third book in her Major Bajan series that is um, set in her Scullian Empire, sort of far-future science fiction space opera, but this one is more noirish. It involves a really cool uh, detective in Major Bajan. Major Bajan achieved the impossible. Born to the Undercity, she broke free from crushing poverty and crime to become a military officer. Now retired from military duty, she walks the mean streets of Undercity as a private investigator, and she's about to embark on her most challenging case yet. The Bronze Skies by Catherine Asaro, Down and Out in Purgatory by the great Tim Powers, and A Call to Vengeance by David Weber, Timothy Zahn, and Thomas Pope are all available in mass market paperback form and booksellers everywhere. What a great January. What a group of great authors. This is part two of a two-part interview with David Drake talking about The Storm. Part one can be found on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Dave Drake to the podcast once again, and we are in the house of Drake today. As a matter of fact, it's we are amazing. Um, at at the dining room table, uh, David Drake was attending Duke University Law School when he was drafted. He served the next two years in the Army, spending 1970 as an enlisted interrogator with the 11th Armored Cavalry in Vietnam and Cambodia. Upon return. He completed his law degree at Duke and was for eight years assistant town, assistant town attorney for Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 
He's been a full-time freelance writer since 1981, which would be the bulk of your career now. Well, bulk of my life, actually. His books include the genre-defining and best-selling Hammer Slammer series, the nationally best-selling RCN series, and the Time of Heroes series, which we'll talk about today. Um, The first entry in that was... um, the Spark. Was The Spark, and The Storm is now out of booksellers. But what, all right, what is the social situation? So we got this guy, John, who is in an Arthurian sort, Arthurian sort of way trying to reestablish a, a uh, civilization. Yeah, I mean... It, by establishing, by bringing together champions who go out and... Um, Rescue places and then bring in the tax collectors. Oh uh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, th- this is this is a system that um, pays for itself. Uh, basically, John wants to reinstate the Roman Empire. In effect, um, he doesn't really know how that worked. He he doesn't know how. None of them have a clue as to how the universe got shattered the way it is. But he, John, figures that if all of the human nodes of consensus reality are operating together, they'll be able to stand off threats from outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is in the process of bringing everything together. And, um, yeah, be, because it does, a bureaucracy does cost money. And that includes, I might add, an army and, and the champions. They're, who, they're nobility. Uh, the champions are definitely, there is a nobility. And they're also, you know, pretty low-end bureaucrats. Uh tax collectors, this sort of thing. The, the folks who keep a government working, and I've, I worked in local government, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the folks who create and enforce the building codes, uh, the, we haven't gotten it. I, I don't know that this universe has building codes. I've certainly never referred to them. But um, the, uh, there are, well, well they, they, they definitely filled in a well. Yes, um, <laughs> yes. After. <laughs> well, uh, you know, when, when the well started spewing out monsters from apparently another universe, first you deal with the monsters and then you fill in the well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, Pal is working at a very low level because that's what he's comfortable with and that's what i'm comfortable with but there has to be somebody looking over the bigger picture and um, there are people in the series who do that which are and some of them are his buddies Um, yeah champions who are just better at that sort of thing He's kind of a Percival Galahad. I don't know. He, Percival. Percival. Yeah. Percival is the uh, uh, definitely not Gawain, who uh, very, very clearly in the earliest, um, well, in Kretian, uh, if you read Yvain, there's uh, Yvain is helping a woman who's sister has usurped their entire um, their father's entire estate and this is unjust and Yvain is he is determined to help the sister and the sister has um, gained the support of Gawain quite clearly on her back. Uh, you know, Yvain may be straight and, and noble and pure and all that, and he certainly seems to be, and Pell is, 
but um, not everybody is. And, you know, Gawain would not have uh, taken up against his buddy Yvain if he'd known what was happening. But the other sister came to him and, yeah, sure, I'll help you, honey. What are you doing tonight? Uh, and, you know, the, the original Arthurian material is not nearly as pure and simplistic as, um, as you might get from um, Mallory. Uh, and yeah, I seem to remember something about women with girdles, and in uh, maybe this is the Evain story you know, I'm from uh, from the the. I think it's Percival. Yeah. Yeah. And and not and, and trying to avoid temptation when somebody comes and lays in your bed and such is uh, that's a. Uh, anyway, whatever. Yeah, uh, and and that actually uh, is a problem for Pal. It it is, is a problem for Pal. As we begin, yeah, in the tale in the storm. Um, so Pal has has achieved his his champion status. There's mm -hmm. a Lancelot equivalent to uh, in Clane. Yep. Uh, and and all the no, nobody's as with most David Drakes. No, but there's not one to one absolute analogies no there's no stuff that is this that, that you're making imaginative use of i would say yeah like I, I i start somewhere yeah. but i don't necessarily follow that so, but uh, i'm the the opening scene uh actually comes from uh, the prose lancelot <laughs> for uh in which at a uh, banquet um, a uh, lady comes riding up and demands the help of, uh, you know, from the assembled uh, knights, uh, demands the help of a champion. And, um, and uh, it, so that's, this is the envoy. Yes. Who, who is a, is a preternatural yeah, she she used to be human, but that was a long time ago. Yeah. And she seems to have a sort of. Uh, I pictured her as um, her skin is is sort of statue like, maybe or hard. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like uh, she's been in a cocoon, in effect, uh, for some hundreds of years, and her brain is human in some respects, but it certainly doesn't work in human respects. Um, she is an envoy. And she's an envoy of Guthrum. Uh, or something. For, yes, she is an envoy of the one of the beasts. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. who is Guntram's friend. And Guntram has vanished. And the envoy knows that he's vanished because he rescued her. As it turns out, she didn't really want to be rescued, but she didn't really want anything at the time. Uh, she was... She's a very preternatural, sort of not entirely conscious of herself sort of being. Right? Not at all. The... Not at all. She was, she was part of a apparently plant for a very long time and it was her job to keep the plant running well and then she was ripped out of that situation by Guntram trying to rescue her and um, in the course of rescuing her he has vanished from human reality himself and she knows that and she knows perfectly well what happened to him but she can't do anything about it she can only really discuss it with um, the beast because Guntram was on a, a mission from his friend the beast doing something that 
the beast could not do. And as it turned out, Guntram couldn't either, but he tried. Mm. And, um, and, and Guntram is uh, the mentor of Pal. Yes. So the envoy tells Pal, Guntram trapped somewhere. Yep. And Pal then is, um, <laughs> the, he doesn't know where. Yep. Um, all he knows is something about a cyst. Now, what is a cyst? A cyst is an area connected to the road, but apart from it, which at some point was consensus reality or a reality of some sort because apparently occupied regions of not here on which the beasts live can insist also. It is closed off from the entire universe of all sorts. It, it doesn't exist except it did. And the tricky thing is uh, how do you find this place, which exists, but has no connection with reality? Yeah, you just can't set off and think you might run into it because it's not a place in that way. Yeah. So, Pal's immediate response is to do nothing. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the, he's got to figure out what to do. Yeah. And, and that's going to take time. He, he keeps learning. There is, and so the beginning, the first part of the storm, um, Hal is in Dunedin mm -hmm. um, for quite a while. Um, and he's got various, it, it's a bit of a soap opera in that <laughs> yeah. May, his girlfriend comes back with, with a dude. Um, and uh, at the same time, he goes to the librarian and says, can you please help me figure out what the hell has happened? Mm -hmm. how to get to one of these cysts, right? Mm -hmm. So he's waiting for research to come through. Yep. And during that time, um, he's having a little relationship problem. <laughs> What's going on with him? Uh, his girlfriend has come back with her uncle's grandson on whom the uncle dotes. And the, the uncle is the one of May's, the girlfriend's relatives that she got on with that treated her decently before she went off and became a great lady in her own way. And she expects Pal to immediately set the nephew up as a champion because she wants it and pal doesn't actually operate He's noble and damn it well obviously <laughs> immediately um, be running the company <laughs> yeah uh and um you know pal is willing to work very hard to help the kid get to where he wants to be where the kid mostly wants to be is drunk on his ass in somebody's bedroom. And that's not going to cut it uh, in the, uh, the business of becoming a champion, which Pal takes extremely seriously. And um, May takes seriously the fact that this is my uncle's beloved grandson. And if, if you won't do it for me, then what's the use of you? Yeah. This is, this is a problem. Yeah. Well, what is, I mean, there's may isn't I mean, may and, and pal have a, he really likes her. He loves yeah. her. She's beautiful, but she's also sort of, she's, She's smart, and he's attracted yep. to that in her. And he's a smart guy as well, even though he's a, a bit of a moral um, He's a prig. He's still, 
and he acknowledges that, that mm-hmm. he's, he's still, um, and so there's that connection and yeah. they, they like each other, but she's got different priorities and she's noble and she wants the status. Yep. He doesn't care about that. But, but he's um, willing for her to have a status. He'll, yeah. he'll pay for that. Does there, um, I thought for a little while that you, well, I shouldn't say this because it might be a spoiler, but that, <laughs> that you might be setting up a relationship between the nephew, Os, uh, what's his name? Osman. <laughs> we can't remember. <laughs> uh, what is that kid's name? Sir Osborne. Ah, uh, yeah, yes. Osborne. Mm-hmm. I thought that there might that that may have may have cheated on on Pal, but that's no, not really what's no, going on. No, it's, it's more like a family. Thing, yes, like the mafia more than. The, well, that's it's a lot closer to it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and Osborne uh, is roommates with a fellow that Pal sort of admires more. Um, Who who's there to work hard, and to to make it uh, from hard work. And he's seen that champions can become very, very rich as the, the fellow who freed his own little node from the, the bully in charge uh, then did become. And he wants that. And he is smart and he has a lot of natural talent which he uses. And the thing that really attracts this him to pal. Andreas, yeah. Yeah, yeah, is that uh, this kid works hard and, you know, he keeps his nose to, to the grindstone and he's got a great future in front of him. And he also wants to get rich, which is an unworthy goal, but a lot of people do and he's willing to work for it. And so... Pal doesn't really bond with him, but he respects him. And um, so, yeah. yeah. And so um, Osborne be- dissipates himself, as, as many a, a rich young noble man has done. When they go off to college. Uh, yeah. <laughs> gets in some trouble, I mean, with, uh, with the local gamblers and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, and in a way, Pal has let him down. Yeah. And Pal acknowledges that later when he realizes, you know, because May was trying to push him. Yep. On him, Pal. And push him in a particular fashion. Pal's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Yep. And, and his pride got in the way to the point where he didn't do what he really needed to, to do with the kid. And in, in fairness, uh, the kid didn't want that either. <laughs> It didn't help matters. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's going on at the beginning of the book, especially. And there's a lot of the fun that you get from a Prince Hal uh, sort of character that, that, that you're dealing with. Um, being perverse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, and Pal uh, goes out to clear away the lizard men. Um, and because he, he's just waiting for the librarian to give him some clue of it. And he thinks maybe, who knows what the hell, maybe I'll find a way to get to Guntram along the way. He he's basically has been given a patrol route, and he figures he may as well just do it. Uh, doesn't expect anything of it. But it'll give him something to do while they're trying to get more data for him to act on. And he, so he does do it. And we get some fighting. Oh yeah, yeah. So. We're but plenty of plenty of good action. Yeah. So how does the how does the fighting go? Let me, maybe we should talk about your action scenes. Um, they're swinging swords and using yep using shields, but at the same time the the energy is different in different portions of the things, and so and Pal can can sense where uh, the weaknesses lie. And so yes. And um, dogs have a very great percentage of their brain given over to computing motion. <clears throat> that, that's why when you throw a kibble 
at your dog, it can jump up and grab it out of the air. Uh, you know, their eyesight isn't better than a human's. Uh, actually, it tends to be worse. But they can sense motion in a fashion that is way beyond that of most humans. And um, Pal is using his dog's motion prediction to fight with. And um, it gives him a huge advantage on anticipating what the other guy is going to do. Uh, because when the other guy starts to do it, Pal is seeing the entire action throughout and is able to deflect. It's kind of like having a drone <laughs> that that's showing you this, with, that's circling around because you're seeing it from different perspective as well. Yeah. You can see the back of someone mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. So the dog is wherever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's some and then there's some badass uh, monstrous things that that pal deals with that's fun and we shouldn't talk too much about but uh, they are there there are and they that frog like thing that uh, that's shooting out something nasty and grabbing people by the arm and cutting their hands off and that that's yes there are monsters yeah. this the books they are science fiction, but they do have a fantasy feel. And um, I read a lot of folk tales. And um, I like using them. And some of them work in very, very well with the milieu that Gretchen and um, the writers of the prose Lancelot and such used. Uh, it, it's the same sort of mindset, although they're they're going at it in very different fashions. And the uh, the writers of the Arthurian cycle per se tended to be far more sophisticated than the people doing the folk tales. But um, yeah, I I have. I have fun with these books. I, I genuinely do, and I try and make them fun for other people. But there is also um, it's, the science fiction aspect comes through in, in and later in the book after we go and we see this other maker who has who has accessed one of these sets. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and the fun you start really working out some of the the way that the science is uh, and and what can go together, and there's. And there's a sense of wonder that you don't get in fantasy so much. There's uh, a science fiction sense of wonder that um, that you bring in, in in that portion as well. Especially like the mirror that, that yeah. holds it. That's really cool. <laughs> you just talk about the mirror um, and without giving anything away. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think I can. Uh, well, it's but... Cool. but he's pieced it together from other pieces of like a starship or whatever the hell. I don't know. Uh, and, and in much the way that the Europeans made something new from the Roman stuff. Yes. Um, he's made something new from the old stuff. That was, it's cool. <laughs> Read it. Um, so uh, maybe that's where we should hold it with talking about the storm. What is uh, this? It's written in first person and it's yep. from Pal's point of view. And in that way, it is... Um, very much that that pal seeing the right, doing the right thing, mm -hmm. um, and it's a it, it makes it maybe a more hopeful narrative as a result, or probably does, uh, yeah. Uh, and it's just it's it's that informs the feel of the book to me is that it's pal's perspective so much. He wants to make the world a better place, <clears throat> and. He is focused on that, and he's perfectly willing to die for it. But it's going to be a better place in the terms he understands it. Uh, he's, he is not simply the hand 
of John, the uh, the overlord. Uh, he is the hand of the John that he thinks should be the the absolutely pure focused uh, hero that he should be and he is there to act as that person's surrogate. So Pal is living in in a world of ideas of his own making in a way that uh, yes and he's going to act according to them whatever the people are actually. Yeah <laughs> well that, that's it uh, he, yeah. he is not stupid he knows that people do not behave the way they should often and he he accepts that he's you know a realist but it doesn't change his opinion that they should behave right and um it also gives him a, a measure of forgiveness um in that he think well here's the idea in the way that he for instance that forgives Andreas later, um, yeah. which we shouldn't say why, but he does. Yeah. Um, he's like, yeah, you, I'll punish him if I catch him. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm not looking for I'm him. I'm not necessarily going to go on a vendetta here. Mm -hmm. you know, this is, I understand the world. Mm -hmm. So what would you leave us with with, um, with, the, with the thought about the storm and um, the, the series so far? This is basically a book focused on people trying to do right, but doing so in a courteous, decent manner. Uh, this is not people who know the truth. These are people who know the truth, but are not necessarily going to hammer everybody else into that template. You know, they, so far as they're concerned, they will behave correctly. They are not going to try to force other people to behave correctly. Although if somebody is behaving in a fashion that is incorrect and it gets in the way of other people, they will do something about it. So th this, is, this is a positive series and not all of my stuff is, and I know that. Um, it's also pretty YA compatible. I mean, kids could read it. Um, oh yeah. It's it's not yeah. gonna. No. There's no perverse sex and, and people gouging eyes out to the point where, um, although there's plenty of gouging. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, you know they're they're. The good I'm, guys are going to uh, find a way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I I am a nom vet. I do not pretty up violence. Um, I, I, people who do, who pretty up violence do nobody any, any favors, believe me. I, and I don't do that, but neither am I dwelling on it in these. And there, <laughs> there's one case in particular where somebody, uh, cuts the throat of somebody who's behaved very badly to him. And it's not that the action isn't justifiable, but it sure screws things up for the future because the fellow had things to tell and he's not going to tell if you've whacked his head off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm remembering when that is. Yes, yeah. It would not be good to say exactly. <laughs> no, no, I, I was not. But So, all right, so uh, let's uh, maybe finish up with um, a question about we talked about the the motorcycle act, <laughs> yes. and, uh, um, but but uh, what are some great projects coming? What what are you? Um, I'm working about? very hard, and it's uh, working along now on a um, novel about basically the great explorations of the 19th century. Um, Things like the challenge, uh, well, uh, the best known example is probably the Beagle expedition that took Darwin along, but there were a lot of them. Um, I'm using largely the 
H, um, yeah, HMS Challenger of 1870, 71, 75, uh, which did amazing stuff. Uh, the deepest part of the oceans is Challenger Deep. And that's because it was sounded by the Challenger back in 1870-something. Uh, you know, it's, they, they found the deepest part of the ocean. But it, it was all new. And they, it was a general scientific expedition. They were certainly uh, sounding the oceans, but they were also stopping on land and um, dredging the seafloor and expanding knowledge as the Victorians knew it uh, considerably. And I'm working with an exploration of the sort of these, not not privateering or anything like that. The, the Challenger was in fact a converted Royal Navy sloop. Uh, but going places that no one had been before or no European had been before and um, meeting different cultures and interacting with them. And it, it's, it's a fun thing. I'm using the RCN milieu but none of the characters, and it has a quite different feel from even the usual space operas of mine. So, and that'll be cool. What is the name of that? <laughs> to clear away the shadows. <laughs> what is what? How, what is your RCN naming paradigm for your titles? Do you have one, or where the hell does these wonderful titles come from? Uh. Poetry, generally 19th century poetry. Uh, to Clear Away the Shadows is actually a poem by uh, Max Hoffman from, from the 20th century, uh, poem Diogenes. So it's not one poet that you're no. drawing from. It's, no. It's what strikes you. As yes. As uh, something when that... do you know you've got it? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, when I run into it... Uh, one of the problems with the storm was I found this uh, chunk of Tennyson's Idols of the King. And uh, it was perfect. And I wrote it down. And I lost it. And I lost sight. All I knew it was part of the Idols of the King. And I thought it was from the Holy Grail, but that's a long poem in itself. And I couldn't find it again. So I handed in the manuscript with, without the, the usual epigraph. And Tony read the manuscript and said, uh, we, we ought to have the referent for the title, The Storm. And um, I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. There we go. You found it. Well, uh, my, my webmaster was, I, I could remember chunks of it, uh, but my webmaster did an online search and uh, found it. So I do sent... You, do you think we could close out? Oh, sure. That would be great. <clears throat> Let's do that. From the Holy Grail by Alfred Lord Tennyson. There rose a hill that none but man could climb. Scarred with a hundred wintry watercourses, storm at the top, and when we gained it, storm, round us and death, for every moment glanced his silver arms and gloomed, so quick and thick the lightnings bore, and there to left and right struck. Till the dry old trunks about us dead, yea, rotten with a hundred years of death, sprang into fire, and at the base we found on either hand, as far as I could see, a great black swamp and of an evil smell, part black, part whitened with the bones of men. So that is the referent of the title. And thus begetteth the storm by David. Yes. <laughs> Which is at booksellers everywhere. So, David, thank you. What? Thank you so much for the hospitality of, uh, of um, 
doing it. We are at David's dinner table right now. Yes, yes, and and if you would like a cup of tea, I can find you one. Yeah, well, thank you very much, and thank you and Joe for uh, for having us in. And uh, books out there. Uh, go read a lot, people. That was part two of a two-part interview talking with David Drake about his new novel, The Storm. Part one can be found on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Once inside the restricted collection, she fully opened her lantern. There were shelves filled with books, so it looked pretty much like the rest of the place, only dustier. She was a bit surprised how small the room was, after years of not being allowed inside, she'd built it up in her head that the restricted collection would be far more impressive. Like most forbidden things she'd sampled over the years, reality was a bit of a letdown. She locked the door so her search wouldn't be interrupted. It was believed that books had been common long ago, but when the demons had arrived, they'd ruined most of them. During the Age of Kings, they'd started binding books again, but many of those had been lost when that age had descended into evil. Most of the works from the tumultuous time between the ages were scrolls or unbound stacks of paper. It wasn't until reason returned and the Age of Law began that proper books had as well. Now her order even had marvellous pressing machines that allowed them to make multiple copies of a page at a time. If Rada had her way, the world would be flooded with books and everyone would know how to read. But that was just her being silly, and she knew it. There were shelves filled with wooden boxes and piles of paper, and unlike most of the regularly accessed parts of the library, it had been quite some time since this place had been properly inventoried and organized. This could take a while. One nice thing about the capital was that the air was very dry in the desert, and since this part of the library was deep underground, the temperature never fluctuated. It was the perfect environment for preserving paper. Rada put on her soft gloves. Many of these works dated back to the first centuries of the Age of Law, and some from even before that, back when mad kings reigned, or even before, when demons reigned from the sky and lived on the land. So these works would be very delicate. They would need to be handled with the utmost caution. She pulled her scarf over her mouth because even moist breath could damage an old book. Then she put on her glasses so she could actually see. Rada began her search. It was easy for a voracious reader to lose track of time when given access to new books. But then her lantern ran out of oil. Salt water! Rada had been sitting on a stool reading Melati's Testimony of the Prior Age when she'd been plunged into total darkness. 
No need to panic. She'd spent her entire life inside the library, so ending up in the dark in a windowless room wasn't particularly remarkable for her. The worst part was that she'd been interrupted. The book was fascinating, and the castless question was far more complicated than she'd ever imagined, certainly more complicated than the modern judges suspected. And in fact, it was astounding that so much had been forgotten about this particular topic over the centuries. She held the delicate page between her gloved fingertips so as to not lose her place. Then Rada realized that there was no way that she could have run out of oil already. Sure, Malati's words were difficult to decipher because their language had evolved so much, and it was hard to sort out the truths from the myths. But she'd only skimmed about a hundred pages, so she'd not been down here that long. Why had her lantern gone out? Blind, she slowly reached toward where she'd hung the lantern on the wall with her free hand. She was hesitant, waiting for her fingers to bump hot glass, but instead they hit something soft. Cloth. It was hard to tell through the gloves, but that hadn't been there before. Then, as she lifted her hand, she touched a face. Surprised, Rada screamed and nearly fell off the stool, but a hand clamped onto her throat and choked off the sound. The ancient book was torn from her grasp. The fingers around her neck were like iron. She was lifted off the floor by the neck. As she thrashed about, the man didn't seem to care as he carried her effortlessly across the room and slammed her hard against one of the shelves. Several books fell on the floor, and she'd inadvertently kicked the priceless artifacts as she thrashed about, but he didn't let go of her neck. Desperate, Rada remembered her ceremonial knife and pulled it from her sash, but her assailant swatted it out of her hand with bone-jarring force, and then he squeezed her neck just a bit more. She couldn't breathe. Quiet, archivist, or I'll snap your neck, the man said. He pulled her over, so close that she could feel his hot breath on her ear. Terrified, she began to black out. I know anatomy like you know books. You'd be amazed how little pressure it takes to snap a neck, especially a scrawny one like yours. Scream again and I'll kill you. The grip relaxed just a bit, and Rada gasped for breath. Please don't hurt me. If and how much you will be hurt is entirely dependent upon the honesty of the answers you provide. His voice was neither old nor young, but it was frighteningly calm. Do you understand? Yes, she couldn't understand how someone had gotten in. There was only one door. It was locked, and she would have heard it open. A wizard. I have magic, he said, almost as if he'd read her mind. So if you lie, I'll know. What have you read so far tonight? Ancient history. Nothing more. A history of the untouchables, yes. Yes, the war in heaven, the sons of Ramroan, the fall of the kings and their priesthood. Yes, Rada squeezed. Too bad. You should have listened when your father warned you not to come here. Yes, child, the walls have ears. The walls have ears. That was a common saying about the Inquisition. Rada hadn't thought she could be any more afraid, but she'd been wrong. You're an inquisitor? I don't know. His voice was a menacing growl. Are you a witch? No. I was only trying to research an assignment from the judges. Hot tears had leapt from her eyes and were streaming down her face. Please. The shadow gave her throat a bit more of a squeeze, fingertips on her artery, and it was enough to make her almost pass out. I'm familiar with your task. That's why I'm here, 
to ensure the integrity of your investigation. Now it's too late, and you know things you aren't supposed to know, which makes me wonder if you can keep a secret. Can you keep a secret, Rada? Rada tried to nod, but couldn't move her chin up and down with his iron-hard fist there. I won't tell. Good answer. My inclination is to kill you, but I have friends who hold a great deal of respect for the Lord Archivist, and they wouldn't want the embarrassment of a daughter of the first caste hanging from the Inquisitor's dome. So, due to that respect, you will be given one chance. One. You will never speak of this. You will finish your report, but there'd better not be any mention of these old histories. There's no need to confuse the judges with superstition or the ravings of religious fools. Use what you have been allowed, nothing more. We'll see what you write long before the judges will, and if my friends don't like it, I'll come back. Do you doubt me, Radamantha? No. She flinched as he stroked her face with his other hand. Good job, he said as he removed her glasses. There was a crunch as he ground them to bits in his fist. We'll be watching. He let go of her throat, and Radha sank down to the floor. The room slowly filled with light. Her lantern was glowing again. Ancient books and little bits of sparkling glass littered the floor. She was alone, and her throat was bruised and aching. The book she'd been reading was missing. The door was still closed and locked. What have I done? That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the Valley of Courts as big as the Ritz and gold as heavy as a convict's misfortune, plus deep huzzas and hurrahs for David Drake, author of The Storm. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>